Let's get going. It is that time. We're going to pick up where we left off, but I want to build upon this just a little bit today. Uh, well, you had Brian in last week. You guys enjoy having Brian come? I always love it when he comes. That man's brain is so big. It's unbelievable, the stuff. He's forgotten more than I can ever hope to remember. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. When we've looked at this, and we've continued to build upon this, we're looking at it from the standpoint is, what does that even mean? If you are in Christ, that's a, an imperative. If you are in Christ, then whatever was old is now gone, and you are a new creation. You have now become the imager of God. You are his, his image on this earth, the bearing of his likeness, his mannerism, the way he talked. That is why when you hear people say, like, man, I thought you were Christian. Why do you talk like that? You know what? Most of the time when they say that, they have no idea what a Christian actually should talk like. Right? They'd have accused Jesus of not being Christian enough when he flipped the tables. I've said this before, and this is not a joke, and it's sad, is that Jesus himself would not qualify to be a pastor of a lot of churches in our country. How sad is that? Because he doesn't meet the criteria. And then we jumped into Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It says, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is an enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to be carnally minded and spiritually minded are not the same thing. Carnally minded is not necessarily a moral uh, attribute, but it is more so, are you thinking biblically? You see, what you may or may not understand is that when you are in Christ, there are promises that are associated with that. And that is what we're talking about. There are guarantees from the Father that were given to the Son, who He's passed down upon us, and that with that, they are yours. You have them, they belong to you, it is not a problem. And yet, we don't believe it. We don't receive it, we don't take it, we don't walk in it, we don't stand in it. We talk a big game, but there's no substance to what we do. And we wonder why we have problems. You see, when you respond biblically, you're no longer thinking carnally. And that is how we should always respond. No matter what the situation, in good and in bad. I mean, you want to get real basic, tithing makes zero sense to a carnal mind. Zero sense. Hey, give away 10% of your income, then you will have more. Oh yeah, let me get right on that. That sounds like some dude in Pakistan calling me like, have I got a deal for you today? Yet there's principles to it that even the secular world has picked up on. And so there's something to it, but what do we do with that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse. Uh, we're going to jump down to verse 3. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of all warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we're coming back to this. Are you in a spiritual battle? Sure you are. How do you respond? Biblically. That's it. It's that simple. Not complicated. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why did he say put it on? Because you weren't born with it. And you need it. And it's been provided. But you've got to put it on. So you can stand against what? The wiles. The methods of which the enemy attacks is through your mind. If he can get you to think wrong, if he can get you to think carnally, he can get you to act carnally. It's amazing. You'll see a born-again believer, somebody who is a spirit-filled juggernaut in the faith, they begin to waver. And what happens is they get this thought in their mind, it goes something against Scripture. I don't necessarily mean like her heresy, 
but they begin to get some thought that kind of goes against the principles of Scripture. And before long, they're kind of knocked down a notch. And they're no longer responding in a way that they should because they've allowed the enemy in. They did not take that thought captive. They've now allowed themselves to step down. They're thinking carnally and not spiritually. And they begin to behave in such a way. Then we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that your same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So the adversary of the enemy is walking around looking to somebody to devour. That's both believer and non-believer. The believer should never be devoured, and yet we are. It's because we do not firmly plant ourselves on the Word of God. When the enemy comes in, we begin to justify our bad ideas. Ah, oh, it's okay. I think this works. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus spoke to them and saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, that's interesting. He says, All authority has been given to Jesus. He is the head and we are the body, according to Ephesians 2. So what do we do with that? What does that seem to mean? It seems to me that that authority has been bestowed upon us. And with that authority, what is our responsibility? Go and make disciples. And, here's the kicker, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's the part we leave out. We teach them to command some things. Now let me give you this in real life that's going on right now. just happened yesterday. I say happened yesterday. It's been ongoing for a long time. But something that just came to my attention yesterday. Would you guys agree that the Bible is the unfiltered, unabated word of God in every way and every letter is true and you can't just go and cherry pick it because it is either all right or it is all wrong you can't go pick out the parts you like and take away the parts you don't like I know we like to do that but that's just the reality of it I was having a conversation this week with somebody who's not a cessationist meaning they did they don't believe that the gifts have ended but they're they're not one who believes that the gifts are prevalent And it's like, okay, well, I don't even know what you do with that. And as we began to have this discussion, I'm like, let's just look what Scripture says. And we go and we read a few passages together. I'm on the phone with this guy. He's like, yeah, but. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What did Scripture say? He's like, yeah, I understand that. But, I mean, it was a different time then. That's not what we're talking about, the time then. Is there any indication that they would end taking what you previously held as a belief out of it? Well, no, there's not. So what should you do with that? I don't know. I'm going to have to think about it. Okay, super. That's not the situation I'm talking about. The situation I'm talking about is a pastor who is a former pastor at this point who has essentially left the faith. He no longer believes that Paul is authoritative. He was just kind of some crazy first century guy that shouldn't listen to. Who you should listen to is Jesus. And you should be like Jesus, but not like Paul. Don't be like Paul. He had some wacky beliefs and things like that. Now, this was a pastor. God had been in ministry for 30-plus years. This has been a trajectory he's been going on. It all started with one idea. And it's led to the point that he is now what you would consider and I would consider apostate. In other words, he has, he has left the faith because the, the Jesus he is describing is not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, what do you do with that and how do you get there? Now, you can logic your way through this objection very simply. You know what that objection would be? How come you can read the first four books of the New Testament and accept it as truth 
But anything after that, since Jesus didn't write any of them, anything after that has to be wrong. What sense does that make? If you want to reject them all, that's fine with me. The other side of that, if you eliminate any of the New Testament, how do you know what Jesus said? How do you know what Jesus did? How did you come to these conclusions? So what has he made himself? The arbiter of truth. But he has eliminated the faith. And I, I, I say this, and it's sad, but this is a, a gentleman that is in our area, in this three-state area. So you think that happens just in, in like wide-out places? No, it happens everywhere. It happens with little ideas. When you begin to justify your bad ideas, and you quit standing on the word, renewing your mind to the word, it's a, it has a trickle-down effect. It may not lead to this moment, but you could do this with any other belief or doctrine that we have, any of them. And it's like going back and saying, well, what does Scripture say? Which brings us to where we are today, John 10, 10. It says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come they may have life and have it more abundantly. You see, the church has been lied to. It's continuing to be lied to. In different variations, in different ways, because we don't simply allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We take the Scriptures, we put our spin on it in one way or another. There are complicated parts. There's conjecture that takes place, no question. But the meat of it is kind of self-explanatory. And with this passage, what we see is Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, whose very belief system was keeping people from accepting him as Messiah, rejecting him. They were doing everything they could. They were so ingrained in what they believed that they were willing to ignore what was right in front of them. Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead after the fourth day. You see, they believed they could do it up to three days, but not on the fourth day. That's not possible. What should we do with that? So they came up with this great idea. Kill Lazarus. That'll solve the problem. It's a bad idea. When Jesus resurrected, he said he was going to, and then he did. They're faced with the fact now that this Messiah figure, who we killed, finally out of our hair, we had a three-day reprieve. It was wonderful. Now he's alive again. What do we do with this? I got it. Bribe the guards and tell them that they fell asleep and the disciples came in the night and stole the body. And this guy running around, he's not the real Jesus. You see, that's where bad ideas will lead when you begin to justify why you have them. And this goes in every part. And this leads us to the part where we have been in the last few weeks and we're going to build upon. The idea in Scripture that there is three baptisms. The word baptism mainly means to be immersed. That's all it means. When we think of baptism, we immediately think of water. In, in the first century and prior to that, they had these things called mikvah pools. They, were, they would mikvah all the time. And they would go in there and they would cleanse. They would have to ceremonially cleanse themselves if they touched a dead thing, whatever it was. It was making them uh, ceremonially pure so that they could enter into the temple and to do whatever it is they had to do. If they touched a dead body, if a woman was on her period, whatever the case may be, they had all these different things that they had to go through. That's why when you see um, when... Uh, Mary had, had Jesus, gave birth. What did she do? She had to go to the temple. They had to make a sacrifice. They had to do all these things. Now she was ritually cleansed once again. It was an entire process. Thank God we're over this, right? But what's happening here is we, when we hear the word baptism, our mind goes to water. But as I showed you guys in Scripture, and the key thing is in Scripture, 
is that there's three different descriptions of baptism. And I don't want to rehash all of that, but let me give it to you in a nutshell. The first one is that the Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes us into the body of Christ. When you see 1 Corinthians 12, you say that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. It's not real complicated. I didn't make it up. I didn't even write the term. God did it for me. Okay? But that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is enacting and bringing you into faith. Then from there, we do what we call water baptism, where a disciple will baptize somebody into water. It is a picture of Christ going into the grave, you going in with him, and then resurrecting as a new person. It is a declaration to the world. Why do we do that? Have you ever asked the question, why do we do it? If your answer is because the Bible says so, that's a cop-out, okay? But yes, you are correct. But why is that a big deal? Well, you've got to understand something is that people baptize all the time. And what would happen in the, in, prior to the first century, but in the first century, the time you see John the Baptist, why was he baptizing people? What would happen is whenever a new rabbi would come on the scene, and he would begin to get followers, they would mikvah, they would immerse themselves in the pool. They had these pools. They typically would walk down the stairs. You see that he did it in the Jordan River, probably because he wasn't invited to play with the other ones, would be my guess. It doesn't matter. They would not touch them. They would immerse themselves, go down, come up. They would never touch them. The way we do it today is just somewhere we picked it up. I don't know where. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying that. It's just different. But what they did is they were making a declaration of the world by mikvah. So now they're cleansed and they're coming out. I am now a disciple of, in this case we'd say John. And what that man is teaching, I am a follower of his, his teaching. I have now repented, meaning I have shifted my belief. I've changed my mind. That's what repentance means. So what was John teaching? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. One coming after I. Who is greater than me. Whose sandals I'm not even worthy to tie. It's coming. And then what will happen? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. And that's the third one. Who is the he? You see it in all four Gospels. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the only other things that are in all four Gospels, is that Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. It was so imperative that he told them to wait. Don't go. He said to wait. Now, as we're building upon this, we came up with the idea a couple of weeks ago. Do we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation? When we are baptized into the body of Christ, are we now indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Well, we look at Acts chapter 1. Verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, fine. We get that. He tells them to wait. John baptized with water. They had already been baptized into John, very likely would be my guess. It doesn't say that I am speculating there. Okay, but they are now followers of Christ. He went and picked his disciples, likely from the group that was following John. And so he says, I want you to wait because you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, which is a day that's approaching, the day of Pentecost. It's coming up here soon. And so it's like, okay, great. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit then. The problem being is in John chapter 20, what do we see? Verse 19, the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As, your, as the Father has sent me, I also send to you. 
ascend you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So when do they receive the Holy Spirit? In that moment. And later he tells them to wait for what? The Holy Spirit. So either Jesus was very confused or we're not talking about the same thing. From a grammatical standpoint, we can't be talking about the same thing. And from a theological doctrinal standpoint, it is not the same thing. Some will like to argue, oh, you, you charismatics just think you have a second blessing. That's what it is. It's like, that's what it says. You can have it too. It's not like you have to join this church or go through some, some admissions type thing. You know, I mean, forget that stuff. All you got to do is believe. And so as we've looked at this, we're like, okay, that's great. This was what? The promise of the Father. Was the promise of the Father that we'd be indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Sort of. And Ezekiel 36 is where we saw that. But what is he referencing? He's referencing the moment that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. In Acts chapter 11, so you have Acts 10 with Cornelius, Acts chapter 11, Peter's trying to explain it to all the dudes back in Jerusalem saying, listen, I know this is going to sound weird, but let me tell you what happened. And as he goes through this whole thing, for time's sake, I'm just skipping ahead, verse 15. As he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When did he give that to them? When they believed. As you saw in Acts 10, there was no moment of bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand. He didn't even know why he was there. He shows up because the Holy Spirit told him to. Hey, there's some men looking for you. Go with them. He does that. He's like, okay, guys, I'm here. Why am I here? Cornelius says, well, I was praying at the ninth hour and yada, yada. He goes into this whole spiel. And, he's, and then he loves it like this. He's like, hey, now tell us. Nothing like putting him on the spot. And he begins to go and he begins to preach what we call the gospel. And as he did, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Why? Because in a moment of thinking, they had changed their mind. They'd repented. There's no formula, as we clearly see. So knowing Terry is one who likes stats, I am one who likes stats too. I like to look at different things. And so I put some statistics together. Terry, you like that? Okay, good. Whether you like it or not, you're going to see it. So here's what we look at. Is how is this done? We see there are five chapters in the book of Acts dealing with what we call the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. Five of them. There are no others that deal with this. Everything from that point on, including the other epistles, it is all implied. There is no commandment. There is no formula. And then we begin to look and say, okay, what patterns develop? Do you guys realize that God does not work in mysterious ways? He works in predictable patterns. That is how they interpret prophecy if they're a Hebrew. So we see, well, how was the Holy Spirit given? Not at the moment of salvation, because how did Jesus do it? He breathed on them. That doesn't mean we go blowing people's face. You want to get saved? Come here. <laughs> Make sure you got some gum or a Tic Tac, okay? That's not what we're talking about. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, in Acts chapter 2, what happened? It was given corporately in acts chapter 8 it was through the laying on of hands in acts chapter 9 it was through the laying on of hands in acts chapter 10 it was corporately in acts chapter 19 it was through the laying on of hands and we saw that it can't be the same thing because in acts chapter 
8, I think, and Acts chapter 19. No, no, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Acts chapter 19 for sure. When they showed up, they were already disciples. Have you not received the Holy Spirit since you believe? We've not so much heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so what do we see? What is the pattern? Well, apparently, there is one of two ways in which this happens. It is either through the laying on of hands, or it is done corporally. Which way is the right way? Apparently, doesn't matter. You could argue there were some unique circumstances going on there. That's fine. Regardless, we see a pattern develop, and either way works. Great. Now it comes to the next part. And this is where it gets really wonky. What evidence? In other words, how did they know that they had received the Holy Spirit? Not just them, but as a bystander just standing by. Well, in Acts 2, and we're going to go through this a little bit today. In Acts chapter 2, we saw that they prayed in tongues. Got their attention. You'll see this momentarily. In Acts chapter 8, we don't see anything. Right? There's no So we'll, just, we'll leave it out. Okay? In Acts chapter 9, again, we do not see. This is Saul. When Ananias comes and lays his hands on him, the things falls off his eyes and all of that. Does it say he prayed in tongues? No, it does not. Do we know that he did? Yes, we do. It says it in many other places. So you can make the assumption, but we'll leave it blank for now. Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them? They heard them speaking in tongues and magnifying God. And then in Acts chapter 19, what happened? The same thing. They heard them speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, I'm looking at this basic, okay, let's look at this, let's see what happens. So when the Holy Spirit came upon them, you for sure have three out of five times that you see tongues associated. You could make an argument for the fourth, and I'm not the smartest kid in the school, but let me tell you something. If four out of five ain't bad, even if it's just dentist that get it right, if four ain't five, there's a good chance that fifth one, probably same thing happened. This is a pattern that's developed through Scripture. This is a pattern that developed since then that you begin to see. The problem being, and, and, and this is where I struggle, is that when you hear it spoken of, it's like, well, it's the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. That's too many words. We're not looking at tongues as something spectacular. We're looking at it as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Our focus isn't the tongues. Our focus is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We, see what happens. Will you notice that in Jet? Excuse me, John chapter 20, where were the, the disciples hiding? They were hiding in a room for fear of the Jews. What happens in Acts chapter 2? This is during the Feast of Pentecost. Every able-bodied male Jew was in the area. And what does Peter do? Stands up and says, these aren't drunk. It's not exactly the same thing as hiding. And you see that every moment after there. Suddenly there was a boldness that came upon them. Now let's begin to look at this because here's the deal. If it is true that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not this, and I think I made a case for that, and if it is true that when one is baptized in the Holy Spirit, tongues are associated with it, should we not define what tongues are? I think we should. Because here's the overarching belief. Yes, tongues exist. Many will leave this part out, but it is a gift. There's the gift of tongues, and tongues exist. And what it is, is, is when you perhaps are in a situation, in a foreign land of which you don't speak the language that you will be allowed by the holy spirit to communicate with that person in a language that you don't know okay well what we want to do is we want to examine the scripture now we can look at it anecdotally are there examples that perhaps you have heard of as situations like that 
Yeah, me as well. Several of them, actually. Where I've heard of people that were simply praying in tongues, but somebody heard them. I'll never forget, there was a story, I'm going to get some of the details wrong because I heard it many years ago, but it was somebody that I was associated with, a good friend of mine, and uh, he knew this person, and they were just, and, and they were in Korea, and they were just there, and they're praying, and they don't understand anything that's being said, they're just kind of there, so he just began to pray in tongues, and so they're praying in tongues and stuff, and this woman that was there came over and said, you have the most beautiful dialect of Korean I've ever heard, and was talking about, like, even things into her life, he had no idea it was happening. Okay, he's like, huh? You know, there had to be a translator between them. But I mean, that kind of stuff happens, but that's anecdotal. And you know what? People could make stuff up. Let's just be honest. But let's look at what Scripture says, okay? Because that's where it's got to lie, is what does Scripture say? It's no different. If you believe God heals today strictly because somebody got healed that you know, you are wrong. It's what does Scripture say, okay? Your belief can't be in somebody's testimony. Their testimonies are powerful and are important, but they confirm what the Word says. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. You all are familiar with this, okay? I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, remember, Feast of Pentecost, what happens? There were three festivals that every able-bodied male Jew had to come back to Jerusalem for. This is one of them. Forty days after Passover, here it is. This is the moment that Jesus said, wait. Day of Pentecost fully come. They are with all, with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you understand where some of this stuff comes from, these long titles that we have. What happens here? Holy Spirit falls upon them. There's a loud sound. What is it? It's as a rushing mighty wind. That does not mean that their hair is getting blown everywhere. There's a sound, not the same thing. Don't misunderstand this. There, if you guys grew up in some church that they had them, like, them little flag-looking things up front, there's a lot of bad descriptions that were done in this, one of which was this wind basically blowing them off. Another one was that the Holy Spirit was a dove coming down upon them like He did Jesus. And most of the time, that dove was on fire. And that's bad. That's not what it says. There's no burning of birds going on. Okay? I'm all right. I'm just going to go to counseling this week and get through some of this stuff. All right? So what do we see happen? Well, we see this is the moment where the Holy Spirit came upon them. And because we know this, what do we assume? Well, number one, they spoke with tongues. Number two, there was a loud sound like a rushing mighty wind. So that means that at least both of those things are possible. Absolutely. So if you heard about somebody where the Holy Spirit fell down in a service and you heard a loud wind, is that at least possible? Sure. Can't deny it. That's what it says. Let's jump down to verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak his own language. Now, why were there all these Jews in Jerusalem? It's the Feast of Pentecost, right? So they hear the sound, and then they're confused, and they also hear them speaking his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? So why did they say that? Well, they knew who they were. And Galileans were not educated people. They were not bilingual. They were barely lingual in their minds. So because of that, like how are they speaking all of these languages? Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So now they're being faced with something. There's something undeniably that is happening in this moment. They're there for the festival. They're minding their own business. They hear this loud noise, and all of a sudden, they hear a bunch of uneducated country bumpkins speaking all these different languages, and they are amazed and perplexed. And what do they do? They say, whatever could this mean? They have a decision to make, right? They are faced with a situation. Others, verse 13 said, they are full of new wine. So some assumed that, man, there's something supernatural. Some assumed drunk. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever met somebody who was drunk, who was strictly lingual, become bilingual in that moment? Me neither. Again, barely lingual. So there was something that made them assume this. Verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on. He got their attention. We know that 3,000 gave their life to the Lord that day. It's a powerful moment. But what did we see? They were speaking all of these different languages because there were hearers there that recognized it. Or, they were simply speaking, and the hearer's ears were open to understand it. Either one is at least a possibility. Some say one, some say the other. I don't really care. Either way, supernatural. That's what I know. Okay? So with that, can we at least associate that it is possible that the speaking of tongues is speaking of a foreign language of which you don't know? Yes, it is at least possible that that is a possibility that it could be going on. And here's the deal. This is the only example of that in the entire scriptures. Are there other examples that we don't see that? Well, let's go. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. We know the story because I've talked about it. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit upon a, uh, fell upon all of those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, that was the Jews, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. How do they know they were speaking in tongues? They don't speak the language. Does it give any indication that they understand what is being said? Not necessarily. Okay? Acts chapter 19, verse 1, And it happened when, while Apollos and Corinth with Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we are not so much heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He says, well, then what were you baptized into John's baptism? And Paul said, John indeed baptized him with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men uh, were about 12 in all. So they spoke in tongues. How did they know what they were saying? There's no indication that they did. So the argument here is that the only use of tongues has to be is speaking of a foreign language of which you don't know, and which in a situation, wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Like, have you ever gone to a Mexican restaurant, and you're trying to order, and it's not in English, and they don't speak good English, and you're like, I just don't want the goat. Just bring me anything but the goat. Like, I don't even know how to say that, right? Wouldn't that, yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it'd be magnificent, but is that the only thing 
that it's addressing. Well, we see Paul address this situation in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And you have to begin to break this down. And what we're looking for is because the belief is that, yes, there is a public use of tongues. But there's also a private use. And if that is true, there should be a scriptural backing for that. Because again, don't come to some conclusion just based Let's go with what Scripture says. So let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read for a little bit. I'm going to try to go quick and get you guys out of here. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Do you know what ignorant means in the Greek? I don't want you to be stupid. Okay? You've got to understand something. The context of the book of Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians especially, is they were wild and not smart. And he's dealing with that. He talks about it in chapter 3. When he has the word now there, this is a transition from a previous thought. You, that means that you can pick this idea up, this is the beginning of the context in dealing with spiritual gifts. You see that in other places, okay? Like in Hebrews where it says, now faith is, and you hear everybody's like, faith is now? Well, that now is just a transition word. Faith is now, but that's not what that's talking about. I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So he says they're Gentiles. What does that tell us? They were not of the people of God in the nation of Israel. They were alternatives to that. They were the other nation. It was basically Israelites and the others. That's the way God viewed it. They have now come into the body of Christ so that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Dumb, not stupid. It is dumb, no speaky. They were unable to speak. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And the diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What's the manifestation of the Spirit given for? The profit for all. And we're dealing with a church in Corinth, right? So he is now dealing with these gifts being used together to benefit one another. It'd be like if all of us here today, okay? For the one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, another prophecy, another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues. There it is. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Wow. So there is the gift of the speaking of the tongues, and there is the gift of interpreting the tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. Now let's stop here. Let's think about this, all right? Because we have a hard time not cherry-picking verses. We put the numbers in, so we have reference points. What are we talking about? The church in Corinth was a little while, Okay. They yearn for the gifts of the Spirit, but much of what he's dealing with is explaining to them a proper use of them. They were Gentiles that have now given their lives to Christ, okay? So they were outside of Yahweh. Now they are in Yahweh. And he's going through these differences of gifts that were given by the same Spirit, but for what? The profit of all. Do you guys see that so far? That is the context of what's happening here. Verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, that body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the smelling? 
But now God has set members, each one of them, in the body as he pleased. And if, there were, if they were all one member, there would be, uh, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, of those we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, and our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, and that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, stop. What are we seeing here? He's talking about the group as the body. One person has this gift. One person has that gift. There's not one better than another. There's just differences. That's all there is. I hear this all the time because I'm a pastor. Well, you know, you're up. No, my calling is different and responsibility is different. But my relationship with God, no different. Responsibilities to God, no different in that regard. So he's talking about what? How we're using this corporately, together. Right? You guys see that? All right, let's go on. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. Apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. There it is again. Okay? Now these are not in orders of importance. This is just how they are. Verse 29, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now this is interesting. Because what's the point he's making? Not everybody does these things. Are all apostles? Nope. Are all prophets? Nope. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret tongues? No. So we've got a problem, don't we? You're saying no. You don't know why. You see, we have to distinguish. Let's look at the context. What are we talking about here? The group together. Let's go on. Let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know it as the love chapter. I hate that, but that's besides the point. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, why do I, you think I don't like this? It's because we don't know what the word love means. And we use this all over the place. If you know what it means, you know that all of these things here, if I can do this, but I'm not loving, in other words, I'm not speaking truth would be one way to look at that, then it means nothing. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind, is not envy, it does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What are we talking about? We're still talking about this corporate togetherness, okay? What does love not do? Well, it doesn't puff up. It doesn't parade itself. It suffers long. We're still talking about You see, part of the reason I don't like it is because we go to this chapter without looking at what it's talking about. It is the church together, one corporate body together. So we don't do these things, or we do do these things, depending on what it is. Verse 8, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is uh, knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, 
But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now we've got another problem. Does it not say, whether there are tongues, they will cease? It does say that. Does that mean that tongues have ceased? Why not? What's that? Has knowledge ceased? That's really hard to use that argument anymore. What is going on? We know in part and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come. What is that? Christ coming back. You won't need prophecy. You won't need time. You're standing in the presence of Christ when He comes. There's only one thing that's ever been perfect. When that which is perfect has come. Again, we don't get to cherry pick. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face to whom? Same thing. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what are we still talking about here? We're still talking about corporately. We're still talking about how love does not promote itself. It does not parade itself around. It suffers long with the person that's getting on your last nerve that goes to your church with you. Right? That you're tired of dealing with this, but yet they still need you. They're still trying to grow. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love speaks truth. Right? We're talking about a church body. Why? It's the church of Corinth. He's not writing to all Corinthians. He's writing to the church of Corinth, dealing with issues that are going on. So what do we see here? We see that these spiritual gifts used are for the edification of the body corporately, and this love and all these other things are still dealing with in this body because did he change anything? Have we transitioned to something else? No. The context still is the same. Now, let's jump to chapter 14, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Because what you're going to see here is he's going to distinguish, and it's there subtly, But it's there subtly because we're not looking for it. You see, what I said earlier about in the book of Acts, we see the five cases where the Spirit uh, baptizes people, and we see the speaking in tongues. And everywhere else it's implied. From that on, in other words, the viewpoint is he doesn't have to explain it every single time because everybody... So unless you have a different belief system than that of what Scripture says, then you are not going to read this correctly. So let's look at this. We're looking at either the public use or a private use. That's the difference. Public use could be I'm standing and speaking in a language of which I don't know to hearers that speaks whatever that language is. You're going to see shortly public use could be a tongue with an interpretation to follow. But there's also the private use. We'll get into more of that next week, but I want you to see the difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Remember, there are no chapters in the letter that were written. This is just for us to reference. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Should we do that? Absolutely. We should know what love is, and we should desire these spiritual gifts. But especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now let's stop. Where did he put prophecy? Up here. You should desire it, especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Well, wait a minute. 
because I thought we were only speaking a language of which we didn't know and other hearers would understand it. It just says that no one understands him. That doesn't make sense, does it? So it can't be talking about the same thing. You guys with me? All look at me like deer in headlights right now. Okay. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Now what are we addressing here? In the same context, the corporate body. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Well, wait a minute. If tongues is me speaking a language that I don't understand and only the hearer does, how could it possibly edify me? That doesn't make sense either. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, however that may be. He who prophesies edifies the church. And why is that? Because you understand what I'm saying. I wish you all spoke with tongues but even more that you prophesy. See, Paul knew not everybody speaks in tongues. Is that what he's saying? Not everybody could speak in tongues. It's not a matter whether they could, it's a matter whether they will. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. You guys see that? Prophecy is greater. Oh, wait a minute. Unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive the edification. So what are we talking about here? Your hearer being edified corporately together. If I prophesy in English, most of us in here will understand that. If I prophesy in some tongue and nobody stands up to interpret it, including myself, you're like, well, that's nice. That sounded Russian. That's probably a bad one to use right now. <laughs> Whatever. Also, who do you see here that interprets? Unless who interprets? He Who's he? The one who spoke. It's interesting too. Let's go on. Verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Is that a fair statement? Would you agree that if somebody came up here and just started babbling off in tongues, that it would do you no good? Okay. That's what Paul says too. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So understand how imperative that was. Because when they blew the trumpets, they had certain distinct sounds that told the people what to do. And if they just made a big blah, everybody's standing there like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Right? That's what it's talking about. Verse 9, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are uh, zealous for spiritual gift, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So what are we talking about? The edification of the church. All of these gifts, all of these things are being used in edifying the church. That is what he is addressing. Is he making a blanket statement on tongues and what they are? No, he's not. He's talking about how we are edified when we come together. Let's go on. Verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Who does that? says him that goes against a lot of what we see and believe because you always if you hear somebody do it you're waiting on somebody else to stand up 
That can happen. Don't misunderstand me, but this is, this is clear. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the others are not edified. Now that's interesting because if I speak, they're not edified, but I am. But I will speak and I will sing. That's another thing that he talks about here. But when we're together, we speak the language. Are you guys seeing this? He's making a distinction between a private... Did he tell them to not do that? No. He's saying, when you're together, don't do that. Look at this. Verse 18. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So this is where we get with the whole thing, okay? Yet in the church, where? I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Is he talking about the private use prayer of tongues here? No, he's talking about the public use. He said that prophecy is up here and speaking in tongues is down here unless one interprets it and then puts it up here. They're on the same level. You guys with me so far? I know this can get convoluted a little bit, but it's important that you see the distinction. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes and in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Verse 22, therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And the answer to that is, yes, they will. They will absolutely think that you have lost your ever-loving mind, I am not going back to that place. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever and an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Why is that? Because he understands what's being said. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So we see the difference. It's the corporate body. How to use. What did he just say? If you all come in here praying in tongues, is that good? No. Not according to this. Because what if the uninformed or the unbeliever? Don't misunderstand me. There are times where people get together and pray. That's not what we're talking about here. He is talking about when they come together like this, there's an order that he wants. Look at verse 26. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. That's it. What are we talking about? The church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Now, wait a minute. I thought this was just a language of which I never learned, that I was able to communicate with people who I don't speak the language. That doesn't work there. There is a distinguishing between the public use and the private use. In Acts chapter 2, it was supernatural miracle. Either the hearers' ears were open or they were speaking a language. Either way, it doesn't matter. These other ones, we don't see any evidence of that, but we are seeing a clear distinction between a use corporately in the body. But right there is kind of the nail in the coffin. If there's no interpreter, 
Let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. You guys see that? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Do they not know what Matthew 7 says? In other words, when somebody steps up and they say something, what are you to do? Look at Scripture. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What are we talking about? The church, the church body coming together. A distinguishing between the public use of tongues and the private use of tongues. Here we go, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches. Don't throw nothing. For they are not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. She's... <laughs> I'm going to finish reading this, and I will explain this here briefly. I'd pick that up and give it back to her. She may throw it again. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only that it, re- that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So what's he talking about? Everything for the edification of the body. There should be a formula, so to speak, that one follows. But we can clearly see the difference of the private use and the public use. Let me touch the woman thing real quick, all right? <laughs> yeah, I know you do. So I'm going to come over on this side. <laughs> She's not a very good shot. So, um, and it's funny. I use this every once in a while. When we were living in the apartment, she was jawing on me or something. I'm like, we're technically still in the church. Should you be silent? And uh, I thought it was a great line. She did not appreciate that much, but... Um, you got to understand something. At this point, especially in the first century, women were not trained. They were not educated or anything like that. And this isn't just for women, but what would happen is they would sit separated and during um, trained or, or knowledgeable people may ask the presenter a question. It was a knowledgeable question, but it was frowned upon that anybody that did not have a certain amount of training would speak out in any way. And in this case, that was women. Many of them couldn't read. They certainly weren't uh, trained anything and what would happen is they'd be like well wait a minute what do you mean by that or stuff like that and that's what he's addressing here is like you guys be quiet and you may ask your husband who will explain it to you when you get home this isn't a knock on women it is a sign of the times is what it was okay so can I give this back to you will you behave yourself <laughs> I'm just gonna keep this I'm I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna roll the dice so but here's the thing guys okay getting back to all of this we have to properly divide the word. When I say we've been lied to, we've been lied to in the fact that we have diminished what this is. This was revolutionary. This was prophesied by Joel that it would happen. With it are byproducts of that, but something transformed in the life of the apostles who went from weak and meek to laying down their lives for the cause. It transformed them. When we talk about tongues, you see, that's a, that's, it, it gets so... Um, misunderstood because it's either way over. I mean, there are some people that tell you that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not going to heaven. That is not what Scripture says. And some will say, well, it's completely ceased and it doesn't exist anymore. That's not what Scripture says. It also doesn't say that it's only a foreign language of which you don't speak. And it also doesn't say that only if you can interpret it. Does it? Because otherwise, how do you speak quietly to yourself and to God? 
right? So those things don't work. We have to rightly divide the word. It does not matter what your experience is or what you've been taught. It is what the scriptures say. So I know this is in depth. We're going to build upon this next week, but I want you guys to get that. Like the stuff that we're talking about has been taken away from the church because in, in one sense or another, in a way, it's neutered the church a little bit. Because he told them to wait until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with power. Imagine, if you will, a group of individuals that were so full of the Holy Spirit and on mission for God that in their little neighborhood, they just did what the apostles did. What would happen? We would transform this place. Completely transform it. Because that's what happens there. We're going to build upon this next week. Is everybody with it? I lose anybody. I just want to make sure. I know I said a lot of words. Okay, no more flying objects. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the ability to rightly divide it. That you have kept it and preserved it for all time. And as we sit here today and we read the stories about the people that came before us, that we can garnish from them all the goodness that you have poured out on them, including this, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I thank you that we do not walk in this world unprepared or unequipped, Lord, that we know the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free, and that we can walk boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the promises that you have given. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory and honor today. We thank you for what you've done and continue to do, and I thank you that you open up our hearts to hear from you. That no matter where we came from, what a belief system are, we will always turn back to what does Scripture say? Because that is where you've captured all of this. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor. And we bless your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.